Are you so sick of politics that you want to gag? It's like it's a bad television sitcom that's playing on every channel and you can't turn it off. Do you get along with most of your family and neighbors and coworkers? But it seems like everything that comes in at you out of the word, every, out of the world, everything that you see, hear, and read, makes you feel like you and your loved ones are trapped in some kind of a haunted circus run by the freaks and the clowns. Well, if you feel that way, then you're sitting at the right campfire. You have found the frequency of the Enemy Patrol podcast. Please stand by for new directions. Over. Make yourself at home. Grab a coffee. I'm the Anomic Ranger, your reality scout. Today on Anime Patrol, we're talking about what it means to be normal. I'll take a few pot shots at politics, and I'll be injecting some backcountry balance, the lies, and evolution. So, nothing we're talking about here is controversial at all. So if the terms anime and anomic are unfamiliar to you, I'm not really surprised. You can go back to my episode one, where I cover it, or you can look it up, Google it. Basically, it's a breakdown of standards and values in a society. I, in this season, season one, I've been kind of breaking things up into roughly three segments. The veneration of the normal man, lies found in society, and a little bit of practical advice. <clears throat> so to get started, <clears throat> excuse me, to get started, let's, uh, let's talk about what's normal. I, I kind of touched on this a little bit in, in episode one. But um, normal comes from the root word normalis in Latin, and it means built with a carpenter's square. And I talked about what that means, about having standards to what you do. If you don't build things with a square, you end up with some kind of wanky saw cuts, I guess you'd say. But the problem is our society, when you talk about being normal, they, they, that word has become bad. I mean, think of the word abnormal. Like when you call somebody, oh, you're abnormal. It's like, uh, well, they call it violent speech now. To even talk about being normal or abnormal is, oh, that's, that's bad. And so they say it's mean. It's a mean thing to do. Well, that's exactly how I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it as mean, like as in a mean average. And so when I talk about normal, I'm talking about average people, average things. Think of a bell curve. You know, um, most, uh, when you talk about, say, say the height of people, um, there's an average. And most people fit into that average. So if you plot everybody in a graph, there's this, this giant bell in the middle where most people are. That's exactly how I'm going to use this. So when I'm talking about feelings or politics or anything, that's when I talk about normal, that's what I mean. So where are people? Where are the normal people? Where is the average person? Well, as far as politically speaking, they're not way far to the left and they're not way far to the right. They're kind of in the middle. Um, when you talk about 
you know, where they view life. Most people are not despairing and, and depressed, but most people aren't starry-eyed utopians that feel that somehow things are just going to keep getting better. And most people are not entirely pro or not entirely con on almost any issue you want to mention. Why is that? Well, because most average people are getting on with living their life, or at least they have been. Most people are too busy to get lathered up over all the issues. Most folks have normal, average hopes and aspirations. What are those? Well, you want social acceptance. You want goals that you can attain. You want a purpose to your life. You want to gather enough resources so that you can afford a home and somebody to love and a family and things like that. That's where most people are. That's what most people want. So when you trend normal on a bell curve and you realize that that's where the majority of people are, you understand that this works really well with a democracy. People vote uh, for leaders that will lead them in a, in a direction that they can gather these things, that they can find these things. So it gives the majority of what they need to thrive. And this is why um, democracies have worked well up till now. It builds a strong society when you give the normal people the power. And the normal people know what it is that they're voting for and who they're voting for. Now, in all this, you might say, oh, yeah, but if, if the normal people want that, then what, you, what you're talking about is a mob. But that's not really the case. There, there is a voice for fringe minorities. You need a voice for fringe minorities. Let me give, give you an example. If you're talking about mobility issues, say, for instance, you know, there's some people that can't get around. They're on crutches. They have a, need to have a wheelchair. But most Normal people don't mind society spending extra resources or even making businesses spend extra resources to build things like handicap parking or curbs that wheelchairs can go down or, or bathrooms that are there so that people who are, have problems with mobility can use them. And most people don't mind that. And traditionally, the, the, the voice for the marginalized few have been leftist. They've been those on that side. However, it seems that as things go on, both the left and in some cases the right are trying to use this power, and it's the power of guilt over people, over the average people. They've been using this to carve power out of the majority. In other words, like, well, you, you got to do this, otherwise you're mean or you're racist or you're a bad person because, oh, these poor marginalized people. And instead of the, the making people that, that, that like the, the majority or the, the normal people in society, instead of making them feel like they're doing a good thing by helping out those that are marginalized or those that are on the fringe, instead what it's become down to is an attack on normal. Don't even use the word normal. How dare you call somebody different abnormal? And yet, when you go back to what I said about using the mean average of people, the, the, the bell curve, using the word normal and abnormal, it, it, there's no feeling involved in it at all. It's either you are of the average or you are not. You are on the fringe. 
And really, when you think about it, in, in a lot of ways, everybody's on the fringe in some way. I mean, even your taste in food can put you on the fringe. I like fried liver. Most people don't. That makes me abnormal. Who cares? But it seems like the, the use of this, the, the guilt and, and, the, and, and the name calling has, has went over the top in the last little while. And what it comes down to, I think, is the concept of the Overton window. Now, if you haven't heard that term before, the Overton window, it was, uh, it was a, an idea that was come up, by, of course, by a guy named Joseph P. Overton. And he just looked at society and he said, you know, it's like society has a window. It's a range of ideas that the public is willing to accept. Now, that window can move over time. And let me tell you, when it comes to, say, something like advertising, millions of dollars have been poured into how to move this window, this range of ideas that the public is willing to accept. And there's been a lot of mistakes made. I mean, it's easy to see. It's like uh, somebody, some big company makes an advertisement that, ooh, that's a little over the top, and most people reject it. And suddenly, the one that come up with that idea for that advertisement is in trouble because people quit buying the product. I mean, um, just lately there was a certain razor blade company that decided to really move the Overton window and it kind of backfired. Anyway, getting a little bit out in the weeds here, but people have studied this Overton window, this range of ideas that the public will accept. And they've decided that something like, um, if you want to move the window what you do is you take it to the extreme, but then you just uh, dial it back a little bit. Let me give you an example if you're confused. Say you were a billionaire and you had tons of money to throw around and you decided that the way that humanity was treating, I don't know, some animal, let's think of something, uh, seals or whales or something like that. You didn't like the way humanity was treating. Oh, let's, let's pick something that actually isn't a controversy. Let's say you didn't like the way society was treating rabbits. So what you would do is you would find yourself some fringe group that would make a big name for itself and they would start calling for um, civil rights for mosquitoes and they would be they would lobby the government and they would glue themselves to bridges and they would do whatever to try and get rights for mosquitoes and of course everybody would look at them and go well this is this is bizarre this is this is so weird like who are these people and then another group come along and say hey you know what we got to treat rabbits better oh well suddenly then that's normal. That's more normal. Oh yeah, that's rabbits. It means other people, they want mosquitoes. Anyway, you get the picture. That's maybe a really bad example. I just kind of come, come up with that one off the top of my head. But you get the idea. You can apply that to anything. You, you, you make the extreme, just force it into society and, you, and you, you have all this bizarre stuff. So people are looking at it and going, what, what is this about? So when somebody comes along with something that just a, wants to move the window just a little bit one way, well, then they seem more normal. You get the picture. So by trying to move this window around, by trying to, to change the range of ideas that society will accept, the 
left and for the most part, and some on the right, have are trying to move this window around or trying to, to move this range of ideas the society is willing to accept. And they're trying to carve out of the majority the, the, the concept that a special minority are victims and they need special treatment. So this is where the attack on normal has come from. Let me just, just back up. It's by attacking the concept of normal. Don't even use that word. We'll call that A. B, trying to move the Overton window to change the concept of normal. And C, trying to carve groups out of the majority by convincing them that they're special. They're a special minority. And they're victims. And they need special treatment by the majority. And they, to do that, they, they make promises. They make promises of, of, well, everything from power to money. So the attack on normal has been happening in our culture for a while now. In fact, I would say anybody out there that's under 70 years old, you are pretty much a product of social engineering. All this stuff that I've been talking about has been applied to you from the time you were a child. And it's really hard to pick out of that what you need to think about and how you need to, to look at, at all the things that are going on in our culture right now, all the, the, the ideas that are come flying at us. So in order to survive this, you have to realize that this is out there. You have to realize that this is going on. And in order to take control of your life, I think you have to really start picturing yourself as an individual. Stop looking for what group you fit into. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a group of friends. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what heading you have in your life or, or what victim group that you could be in. and just, just stop looking at that to represent your feelings of inadequacy. Because the powers that be are hurting you like crazy, just like sheep. They're trying to herd you into a group and they're trying to put everybody into a group in order to figure out how to carve up the political power, how to carve up that pie. So the best thing you can do is see yourself as an individual and realize that being normal is absolutely fine and you might have some abnormal tastes or some abnormal thinking in some areas, but for the most part, start thinking about what makes you normal, what you want that when you really look at it is traditional and the look at the, the aspirations that you have. And I think you'll find that you're very normal. Learn to be proud to be normal. So I don't know if this is a good segue to go from, from veneration of, uh, normal man and, and, and trying to talk about who you are and where you sit and then just go right into talking about politics because it already feels like I have been talking about politics. But I want to go a little bit into talking a little bit more about politics and how it's changed, more as a, as a general thing. So anyway, here we go.
politics has really changed a lot since I was younger. When I was younger, the parties, left and right, were both much closer to the centre on the issues. People have become very polarised now and very immature. You can't even really have a debate or a discussion about politics anymore. People are, they're weird about it. And, you know, I can remember when I was, when I was a kid, I remember the older, especially the older men, the women get involved in it once in a while, but for the most part it was men, they get talking politics and pretty soon voices would get raised and maybe in a fist they pounded on the table and, and it was like how well you could, you know, state your where you stood on on an issue, for instance, and people would compete to see how well they could speak and and how they could make their argument and but you know after the political discussion was done and a little more coffee was slurped, I mean it would be like they'd go on with their life i mean there was i mean I'm sure there was a few people <laughs> where you know it took a while for the temper to tamp down, but for the most part, these people were friends, neighbors uh relatives, and well, what it comes down to is politics were separate from life. Life was not politics. Politics was not life. It was just a way of arranging society. But it, now it seems like for people that politics are their life. Their, their entire mode of being, their, their, who they are as a person is completely in the politics. It never used to be like that. Politics was separate from life. Another thing I've noticed is is pragmatism is completely dead in politics. Um, it's like if, if if a bus full of kids crashed halfway off a bridge, went through the guardrail and was hanging off a bridge, and it's it's like if one group of people that were on the right decided that they were going to go up and and pull that bus back, it'd be like all the people on the left would say, "No, we got to go push it over." They wouldn't even think about what actually needed to be done. It was just that group wants to do this, so we want to do the exact opposite. Politics has become very, very poisonous. It's no longer about the best method to govern a country. Right and left, they've become ideological inflammations of personal identity. It's like people are their politics. Another thing I've noticed is the left has been galloping so rapidly towards, I'll call it collectivism. Um, I guess I should explain what I mean by collectivism. The left has been galloping toward, I'll just use all the words, communism, socialism. Um, I won't use liberalism, although they have used that as a title for themselves, but it's, it's all collectivism. It's the idea that if you put the power, and they call it, in the hands of the people, that things will get better. Now, this is kind of interesting because I, I was reading an article the other day, I can't even remember where it was, and it was talking about socialism, and it said 80% of, of those uh, 30 and younger have a positive view of socialism. And then it said 13% of that same group could explain socialism, the rest of them didn't even know what it was. It just sounds good. 
I have to be patient about this because of my generation. I grew up, I remember when the world was divided between communism and, well, basically communism and the rest of the world and all its different flavors of freedom because communism was never free. And communism is just forced socialism. It doesn't matter how you boil it down. Essentially, socialism, communism, collectivism, it's, it's the means of production is given to the people. Now, that in itself is a lie because the means of production is not given to the people, it's given to the government. And those are two different things. So when you're listening to socialists talk about, oh, the power needs to be with the people, they're not talking about power with the people. They're talking about power with the government. In other words, it's really statism. In other words, all the power goes with the state. So it's like communism, socialism, collectivism, whatever you want to call it, is rearing its ugly head once again. And the idea has been tried and tried and tried. And it's killed way more people in the world than Nazism ever did. I, that, this is the part that just baffles me as being from Gen X is, is, you know, you can call somebody a Nazi and that's a horrible, horrible thing to call somebody because the Nazis did horrible things. But you know, the communists did just as many horrible things or more. They actually killed more people. And, and yet it's, it's cool to go around with a, a Che Guevara shirt on or hammer and sickle or to call yourself, oh, I'm a Stalinist or a Maoist or something. It's like, just as evil. There's just as much evil in the left there as there ever was in Nazism. Anyway, I'm down a rabbit trail here. And it seems like the other thing that's different in politics is now the right are either toadying up to the collectivists, the socialists, or they're actually aware and afraid of this turning into communism. So they're looking to try and gain power. In other words, they're trying to, to force almost like a new kind of Nazism to fight against communism. And really, when you look at it, you know, they always say that those who refuse to learn history are doomed to repeat it. And that's exactly where we are at right now. I don't know if you've heard about this, this group, this Antifa um, they're big on the West Coast there, the, the Seattle and some of those cities over there. They're, they've, they're all over the place. And they're running around. They show up in black and they, they wear masks over their faces. And whenever somebody shows up to speak, like something like Patriot Prayer or, or whatever, pro-Trump stuff, well, then these Antifa show up. And Antifa stands for anti-fascists. And that's what they actually believe in, is they're fighting, or they say they believe in, is they're fighting against fascism. You know, they're not new. They're actually really old. This is exactly what was going on in Germany uh, back in the 1930s. Germany was in a was in a pit of depression. Well, the whole world was in a depression, but Germany was even worse because they had lost in World War I. They were paying reparations to the rest of the world. And there was a lot of talk. There was, the Germans were, were upset because they, got, they lost the war and they felt that their leadership had, 
had, had doomed them and turned their back on them. And so there was, there was all kinds of little groups that were going to, you know, try and win Germany back for the Germans. And so there was a, a rise of, of um, what you would call fascism at the time. But at the same time, you had just across the border in Russia, the, the newly minted communists in Russia that were formed in 1917, and they had sent in organized, funded communist groups to try and bring communism to Germany. And that was the name of the group that came from Russia, that came from the communists, the Bolsheviks. They were communists, and they called themselves anti-fascists. So they were going to stamp out this fascist movement in Germany. Well, they tried, and they used all the same tactics that the Antifa is, is using in cities in the United States and, well, I guess around the world, but they're very big in places like Portland. They're almost running the city, or at least the police won't step in and try and stop them. So this is almost a situation that we've got right now in the West, is we have groups like this Antifa who are, organized and funded by leftist people. And they're swearing up and down that, that the, the fascists are trying to gain power. Well, there is no fascist trying to gain power. Trump is not a fascist. He hasn't done anything that even remotely looks like fascism. And yet you have this Antifa that shows up at any rally or any group in the street and you, they show up and they throw rocks and they hit people in the head and they light things on fire and they're doing all the same, same things that Antifa did before. So all we need really to bring things back to the way they were in the 1930s before World War II, all we really need is a good depression and put a bunch of people out of work and, and, and the money supply tighten up and, and, we'd be right back exactly where we were before World War II. And if Antifa is allowed to continue doing it, we don't have any Nazis right now. They're calling everybody that's not a communist, they're calling them a Nazi right now. I mean, if you just disagree with people now, you get called a Nazi and Hitler. And look at how many times Trump has been called Hitler. And But if Antifa keeps pushing and keeps and it is allowed to continue attacking, there will soon be Nazis. They will form. They will, they will form in the vacuum that our government is leaving there. They will form and because the, the normal people don't want people like Antifa showing up at things and hitting people in the head and breaking things. They don't want that. They want order. Remember, they want to live their life. So... Back in the 1930s, when the Nazis showed up, they were looked at as heroes. Hitler had his brown shirts, and his brown shirts would show up at rallies. They would show up at things. And if Antifa showed its head, the Nazis would go after him, hammer and tongs, and they were looked at as heroes to do it. So, something to think about. Another problem that, that makes politics, that makes it kind of become poisonous nowadays is it seems like no one wants to think for themselves anymore. They don't want to put the effort into actually trying to figure out the issues. Instead, what they do is they pick a side that looks cool or one that maybe their friends are in or their 
pick a side that their relatives will give them a hard time about and they just say, oh, I'm with this side. Nobody's actually looking at the issues. Nobody's actually like putting the time in to do the research and actually figure it out. No, they'd rather just pick a side and have a big fight, fight with the other side. And it, it seems like that's the way it's going now. Another thing I've, that makes politics poisonous these days is the left seems to be driving the narrative, the story in the world right now. Um, the media is left. Uh, all our, our higher institutions of learning are leftist. Um, leftist, communist, whatever you want to call it. That's the direction it's heading. Um, the school system, most of the curriculum that's coming through is, has that bent to it. Um, and even a lot of these big companies now, it seems like that's the direction that they're going. So they're dividing people into these groups, into victim groups, because they're looking for votes, they're looking for power, they're looking for money. And identity politics works. If you can convince uh, people that are of the normal, that are in that normal bell curve, that because of the color of their skin or their plumbing or how they think that, they, that they're a victim and they can pull them out of that normal group, then, well, then you got more votes. You got more money. You got more power. So if you take all this, if you're head's kind of swimming and you don't know where this is all going and you got to go, wow, I got to do some more research. I got to figure this out. Good. That's, that's good. But let me give you a idea of where I feel. This is my rustic reasoning on where society sits right now. If you think of the social fabric of our culture, you know, all the things that puts it together and makes it all work. Think of it as cloth you know, the threads, there's the warp and the woof and the threads. They go up, they go down. They all work together and they make it strong, give it its strength. So our social fabric in our culture, that fabric has been weakened by all these different voices and all these different narratives that have come out. It's been weakened and weakened and now... It's being fought over by two dogs. One's on the right, one's on the left. And those two dogs are snarling and pulling. You've seen dogs play tug-of-war. Our social fabric is between those two dogs right now. And eventually, in its weakened condition, this social fabric is going to tear. And when it does, most people in our society are sitting in the middle. They might be making noises left, they might be making noises right, but most people sit right in the middle. That's where the normal people want to exist. So what's going to happen when that fabric finally tears? Moral of the story is, what do you do? I know, talk about that. This is part of the thing when it comes to, I talked about it in episode one with you know, the, the panic in the eyes and the shrug of the shoulders. It's time to quit shrugging the shoulders and it's time to start working on that panic. So what do you do? Don't be herded right or left. Learn to think as an individual. Learn to 
see things for what they are. Start looking for the lies in society, which is the next thing we're going to talk about. And just accept the fact that the majority of your thinking has been engineered. You are a product of social engineering. Just get used to that idea. And then you'll start seeing things in a bit of a different light. So now we're going to segue from talking about politics to talking about lies. I don't know if we're actually making a change here, but, you know, politics, lies, it's all pretty much the same thing. But, uh, yeah, that's where we're at. So next up, we're going to talk about one of the lies in society, the lies in evolution. So you and I are sitting here talking by the fire and everything's great, but I know there's people out there, you put the word lie and evolution together and oh, they're just geared up to be outraged. But if you're geared up to be outraged, uh, you're going to be disappointed because I don't have time. In fact, I could have 12 lifetimes and I could spend those 12 lifetimes doing nothing but arguing with people about the difference between evolution and creation and, and people just get in a rage over it. It's one of those issues. Basically, there's two narratives. Now, the people that just totally believe in evolution, they feel that they have science behind them. And gall darn it, you know, science and everybody else, they're just talking fairy tales. Well, a lot of the reason is because when they think about um, creation, they just they think about the, you know, the Sunday school stories. But if you put the two narratives together with about the same amount of wording and don't, you know, throw um, a dozen books in about the bones in monkeys' hands and all the money and all the ink that's been spilled trying to explain evolution. If you actually look at the issue, there's a lot about evolution. There's a lot of holes in the whole theory. I'm not saying that everything about it is wrong, but there's a lot of stuff in there that, you know, it, even in the last 30 years, the way science has, has moved ahead, it's left a lot of evolutionists scratching their head. They're talking about things like punctuated equilibrium and, and the Cambrian explosion and genetic drift. And they're using a lot of different words that are way different than the original evolution and the way it came out. So it is an interesting thing to look at. But I'm going to give the two narratives and I'm going to give them about the same amount of with a bit of a smile on my face and, and my tongue in my cheek. Here goes. Here's the two narratives. The creation narrative is this. There's a big guy in the sky and he speaks creation into existence in all its diversity and connectivity. There's some adaptation over time, but hey, it's pretty much the way the big guy intended it to be. Now, if I gave science, what they call science, evolution, the same amount of cheek, I guess you'd call it. You'd say once upon a time, 
and time would have a really you know important thing because I mean let's face it the evolutionists have been adding years and years and years to try and make all their stuff work they feel that well this is uh, barely plausible but if uh, <clears throat> excuse me if I if they give it enough years so now it's like up to I don't know a Google zillion years ago or something. So here we go, once upon a time, a Google zillion years ago, nothing exploded into everything. The rocks cooled down and they sprinkled their dust into a pool. A lightning bolt came down, add another zillion years, and voila, you got birds and buffaloes, monkeys and mangoes, flatworms and finches, willows and wildebeest, you get the picture. So to me, one sounds as fairy tale as the other if you tell it in a fairy tale. But let's let those people, we'll let them go off somewhere and be all outraged with one another. They can go in a corner and yell at one another and pull each other's hair and talk about the bones and the rocks and whatever. Mostly when I talk about the lies in evolution, I want to talk about the abuse of evolution, the abuse of the concept. Here's where I'm coming from. Morals, philosophies, and societies, they don't evolve not really. They change, but they more revolve than evolve. We've been here before. Now, I'm not talking about uh, you know, science or technology. Those things can evolve because they, they, one thing builds on another. But as, as far as morals and philosophies and then the basic the way societies, how people in societies treat one another, it's, there's, there's no evolution there. The idea of prog- progressive, and, and that's what a lot of the leftists, uh, communists, collectivists, whatever you want to call them, they, that's another word that they gave themselves, were progressive, were the progressives. In other words, we're the ones that, that we're, we're the smart ones, we're the ones that are moving along, we're, we're ahead of everybody else. And you know what? It's bullpucky. If you really want to know how societies, how they revolve, this is how they revolve. Hard times make strong men. Strong men make good times. Good times produce weak men. And then weak men produce hard times. And if you study history and you look at societies and cultures, this has happened over and over and over. Just because an idea is new doesn't necessarily make it good. Here's, a, here's an example from my own life. When I was a kid, we lived in a northern city in this northern country. And it was an area where they were producing a lot of oil. And this was during the time of, of um, well, there was a shortage of energy. This was the energy crisis. So oil was worth a lot of money. So the city that we were at was, and it wasn't a huge city, it was... It was, uh, but it was a growing city. It was people were moving there because there was jobs, jobs, jobs. And so it was bustling and it was growing by leaps and bounds. They could barely keep up with infrastructure. And one of the problems they had keeping up with infrastructure was schools. So when I started, uh, what grade would it be? It would have been, I don't know, grade two or something like that. It, the classrooms were severely crowded. And so, and they were building new schools, and so they broke the 
kids up and, and, and when they built this new school. And I mean, when we got there, it was so new. You could still smell the glue. And things hadn't even dried yet. And they were moving students in. But this school that I went to, it was not just new as far as the building was. It was a brand new idea. It was a whole new concept in education. I mean, there wasn't classrooms. They had the, the schools broke up into, I think, four great, big, huge, like gymnasium-sized spaces. And then they had rolling dividers to divide the kids up into classes, which were larger than other classes. And I don't know what this was supposed to do, create an open concept or a feeling of flow or who knows what degenerate in some university education thought up how this was supposed to be good. I'll tell you what it was. It was noisy and chaotic is what it was. Anyway, and they even had uh, uh, different ideas about, they didn't have regular physical education. They had things like creative dance. Yeah, it was very progressive. All the teachers were these young baby boomers with their head just full of these just awesome ideas on how they were just going to change the whole world. Yeah, let me tell you how they taught mathematics. Now, this would be grade two or three or whatever, and you're supposed to learn your multiplication tables. Now, this is long before the age of calculators. So up until a lot of time, it was just thought that grade two, grade three, you start memorizing your multiplication tables, two times two is four, etc., well, this was new and improved. They weren't going to do it that way. The kids were just going to somehow absorb it. And this is how they did it. They had cans of bottle caps and cans of popsicle sticks. And they got all the kids to push their desks into the corners of this noisy room. And they dumped these bottle caps and popsicle sticks in the middle of the room. And then they put on a record. Yes, it's that old. They used a record. It wasn't a cassette tape. It was a record. And they put the record on and on the record is this voice going two times two is four four times four is 16 and the idea was the kids were just supposed to naturally start using the bottle caps and the popsicle sticks to make groups and and figure this all out and then and in here shows their genius then the teachers left the room and this was all just supposed to flow well i'll tell you exactly what happened the boys made little forts out of popsicle sticks and and little catapults and and tried to shoot bottle caps at each other's forts. That's ex- what happened. It was it was chaos. So this is the idea that this was in like I don't know what year it would be like in the seventies, early seventies, and this would this was the idea. This was prog- progressive. This was new and improved. And the end result was is. I got behind because I didn't know my multiplication tables. And then we moved to a different town and I went to an older school and the other kids all knew their multiplication tables and I hardly knew what multiplication was. And I stayed behind in mathematics till I reached my secondary education until I actually had to learn it. Not multiplication tables, but I mean, I just stayed behind in mathematics. So this is what I worry about is that youth are the targets for this, this concept. And they, they, you look at the way the world is going and they keep telling young people that, that old is bad and new is good. 
and, and the whole idea stems out of this concept that things are evolving. So, of course, the next generation is is much better than the last generation. And there are some things that the newer... I mean, obviously, if you want to look at technology, then the newer generation is more up on the newer technology than the older generation because the older generation got behind when they were busy slaving away at a job to buy food for the new generation, the younger generation. So, there... But the idea that one generation to the next, there's actually evolution. I mean, they can't even find evolution when they start plotting millions of years. So when you're talking 10-year evolution, I'm sorry, but I smell BS. So where do we... That's just, that's just one of the lies. This, this, you can look at this. Um, and how evolution and how everybody has been programmed to just automatically believe that things are evolving. What if you started thinking that things weren't evolving? What if you were thinking that things were revolving? You know, I know one thing, and I'm going to go off a little bit into the weeds here, but I will tell you one thing. Whether you want to believe in evolution or whether you want to believe in creation, if you start thinking of yourself as a created being, you'll be better off in your thinking. Because to think of yourself as just a byproduct of stardust, that you're just a meat sack moving around on a planet with no purpose that's all going to end up, everything's going to end up destroyed in the end and everything's going to be the same temperature. It's It's pointless. If you start thinking of yourself as a created being, then you have a point for your existence. So you're better off. So maybe just start thinking yourself, maybe, maybe, you know what, maybe I am created. Maybe there is a force out there. Maybe there is a purpose. Maybe there is a reason. At least it'll get your mind thinking something besides the pointless existence of something that crawled out of the muck and got smart and is going to die. Think of an egg. I know that comes out of left field, but think of an egg. You know, an egg progresses. If, if an egg is fertilized and it has a hen to look after it and she sits on it, keeps it warm, and she gets her feathers wet once in a while and fluffs on them and keeps it moist and turns it once in a while, it develops into a young chicken, a chick. It's, it's, it's like a miracle. But if that egg isn't looked after in the right way and it's just left on its own, it progresses. It turns into something that is completely and utterly foul. Gross. I don't know if you've ever broken a rotten egg before, but it is... Completely disgusting. So you see, you have progress on both of those eggs. One is looked after and is given purpose. The other one is just left on its own. Maybe start thinking of your life as kind of like that. And you probably will be better off.
So how's things going? It's time for some practical advice. So you still getting out for a walk every day. Maybe add some other exercise to it. You know, um, start uh, finding some heavy things to lift. Work your muscles. Still finding some nature to study? Did you find some trees? Did you find a place you can go look at a river? Find a place you can get out away from city lights and, and look at a starry sky. See how big it is. See how awesome it is. Let me add a new one, just kind of out of left field. Here's a new one that you can do. Sit down and make a list of all your skills that you have. Big, small, all of them. Just start writing them down. See how many you can get. Then... Maybe cross off anything that requires electricity just for just to see what that looks like. Are you still trying to give yourself a, a, a bit of a holiday from devices, from the internet, from television? Make sure you do that one. That's important. The, I'm going to get in talking about that a little bit more in some future episodes. But yeah, give yourself a break from it. Find some nature, find, get out for, move your body, make it work. Start thinking about yourself as, a, as an individual. So, yeah. Anyway, that's about what I have for you today. And again, I'll say you can find some more of Anomic Ranger's Boreal Broodings at anomicranger.com. Um, you can send me an email at animepatrolhq at yahoo.com. Um, if you enjoyed this, make sure you like it, subscribe to it, share it, tell a friend about it, tell an enemy about it, tell anybody about it, send me a comment. Or, like I said, you can send me an email at animepatrolhq at yahoo.com. Anyway, so at this time, I'm going to remind you Till we meet again, keep your chin up, keep thinking about things, keep thinking of yourself as an individual, quit looking for groups to you should belong to, you can look for friends, that's fine, but have friends as, as an individual, and keep an edge in your knife, your match is dry, life really is the greatest adventure, learn to live it that way, bye Candios, eh?